Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning and welcome to Red Sea Roundup. I want to welcome our listening family. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Judy Como and today I'm the host of Red Sea Roundup. So very excited to be here. I want to welcome all of our listeners from across the Central Texas area listening here locally in the Bryan College Station, Brazos Valley on KEDC 88.5 FM. Central Texas listening in KYAR 98.3 FM and KINF 107.9 FM in Palestine and friends of ours that are listening on your app. I called my cousin in Dallas today and tried to encourage her to listen to the show. Uh, Very much of interest to me, my guest today is... uh, Wearing more than one hat as the station manager, Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, People who know me know that I'm a big old brat and I like to have things my way and I usually do get them, but Thaddeus was gracious. I didn't know that about you. You didn't? No, hadn't noticed it. Maybe kind of just check it out and maybe you'll come to that awareness and understanding, but... Thaddeus was very gracious to come to our St. Anthony's Bible Gals gathering. Um, I've been a part of a Bible study there at St. Anthony's for 20-something years. And over the summer, Huzzah. We uh, <laughs> are, uh, rather than having a six-week study on the book of whatever, we, ta- we have some standalone lessons or con- uh conversations and you were gracious to come and present what we're going to talk about today and since I couldn't be there I'm like will you do it again on air so other people get to hear it yeah, in, in my little whiny the beginning voice. Of the month right yeah yeah, yeah. so today um, and we're always would be grateful for a phone call with a question or a comment to, but today especially I think we're going to be uh, reminded of some things that we knew obscurely I say obscurely in my mind because we're going to talk about the Catholic Church in the United States and experiencing Vatican II and things like that. So being 64, I experienced it, but I really wasn't as aware as I am now looking back in retrospect. So, Yeah, and just to uh, kind of set the table a little bit more, um, the Vatican II is going to just kind of be at the tail end of our discussion. I mean, maybe it'll be more... Front and center than yeah. than it was in my presentation to your group, um, but this is this is also kind of a broad sweep, and I want to emphasize painting with very broad brushstrokes. <laughs> um, there's a lot of you know individual detail and nuance that I'm leaving out, but I'm trying to give a kind of overview of the American Catholic experience from the the beginning of the country. Um, certainly by the beginning of the 19th century up through the end of the 20th century. And how it was up yeah. until that time and then when yeah, Vatican II kind of took how place. It, how, and... uh, 
how uh, the past repeats itself mm-hmm. and how <laughs> at, how things were uh, are those things kind of come come back around. Great. So st- stick with us through the next segment. That's what Thaddeus and I are going to be talking about. Uh, we would like to, I can't say begin our segment because we've already been talking for about five minutes, but I'd like to um, pray our prayer to St. Joseph as we continue to celebrate the year of St. Joseph. So if you'll join me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, blessed Joseph faithful guardian of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, protector of your chaste spouse, the Virgin Mother of God. I choose you this day to be my special patron and advocate, and I firmly resolve to honor you all the days of my life. Therefore, I humbly call on you to receive me as your adopted child, to instruct me in every doubt, to comfort me in every affliction, to obtain for me all the knowledge and love of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and finally, to defend and protect me at the hour of my death. Amen. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find lots more information about the year of St. Joseph on our website, uh, continuing to utilize the book by Father Donald Calloway, The Consecration to St. Joseph. Um, and uh, especially keep an ear out for our um, Wonders of St. Joseph PSA series that Robin Waters, our Waco station director, put together because those are um, very much inspired by Father Calloway's book. So you can get some little uh, nuggets just by listening to those spots. Absolutely, yes. And I also want to... I'd say shout out, but since he's right across the desk from us, just want to say good morning, Dennis. How good are morning, you? Good morning, Judy. I'm doing great. I'm uh, a bit exhausted. I'm, I this hear old you. man is not used to, to doing the outside work and the heat, and, and I'm looking across the street to the construction workers uh, every day here outside of the uh, student center at St. Mary's in College Station, just wondering. Oh my gosh, how do they take that day in and day out? So well, thanks be to God for all of our workers that are <laughs> so. A, Kind of a so strong. texting prayer with my sister-in-law and said, and you know, be sure to remember Keith in your prayers, my husband. Mm-hmm. We own a lawn care and landscaping service, and people pose the question to him, how do you do that? And I finally trained him after 31 years of marriage to respond. It's the love of a good woman that, <laughs> that helps him. But uh, what Dennis uh, is talking about, I got to see... With my own eyes on Monday, uh, we're doing some upgrades to our tower, and uh, that involves, you know, there's no shade around a radio tower. And so for those (laughs) of you like me who get in your vehicle and your radio works when you turn it on, and the only time you really question anything is when you have a poor signal, or if something's not going right, you might call Dennis and say, hey, what's up? But... Um, I got to. I've never been out to there to the tower site. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful area we, of Robertson County. We put Judy to work earlier this week. Yes, so, so I was, she delivered I, new satellite dishes on her trailer. And they let me do some stuff. I wasn't just standing there working these, no. watching these four guys work. I got to use some tools and. Judy's got the gun. She's they, fully capable. Absolutely. So. so total credit, you know, to you guys who 
well, Dennis, you you know, were open to the Holy Spirit years ago, just to do what it took to bring Catholic Radio to yeah. our area and all well, the thank you. Thanks coordinations to God. of the Holy Spirit to help it to fall into place. But, uh, you know, to walk in that little air-conditioned building in the middle of nowhere and see the computers and the everything that it's taken mm-hmm. for us to be on the air right here today and yeah. broadcast to the areas that we know mm-hmm. and then with our app and your ability, our ability to, so yeah. to God be the glory. Amen. Thank you and Thaddeus and Robin and Anthony for your hard work. Mm-hmm. Here recently, but right. you probably did it several times since then, and oh, I didn't even know about that's it. That's quite all right. It's uh, we're having to replace our satellite dishes because the hailstorm of several months ago, I think they were probably baseball size hail out mm-hmm. there, just completely turned our our satellite dishes into Swiss cheese. So no, it won't increase the reception around here in your radio, uh, but it will give us a better lock on our satellite dish. And as the FCC and the uh, cell phone carriers are compacting the the bandwidth, we're going to have to have a better satellite dish anyways. And so this uh, Mother Nature and, and the Holy Spirit helped uh, <laughs> make that happen a little faster. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it is hot out there. Um, so currently we're offline with satellite, but we are picking up the signal directly over the magic of the internet from our friends in Waco. So Waco, y'all are feeding our tower site here um, through all kinds of technology uh, Jumping through hoops. And yeah. so uh, just be patient with us. If it, things get a little garbly, that's because people are streaming movies and stuff like that. You know, I guess it interrupts some bandwidth, but uh, we should have a real clear signal uh, from our satellite dishes. Yeah. I hope this time next week. Right. And the the workings of Red Sea Catholic Radio and the different things, there's every weekend, uh, Robin and Dennis are doing parish presentations to uh, increase Mm-hmm. information about the radio, increase donations if possible, but uh, right. off many many parishes the proclamation and many of people. the kingdom. Very yeah. good. Yeah, thanks uh, be to God. I want to make mention tomorrow is the Feast of St. Martha. St. Martha appears in the Gospel of Luke and John together with her siblings, Lazarus, Lazarus and Mary of Bethany. Uh, we know that she lived in Bethany near Jerusalem, and she was a witness to Jesus resurrecting her brother Lazarus. There's a lot to say about St. Martha in the Gospels, but I reflect personally um, and marvel at her witness and her profession of faith when um, Jesus arrived. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Here's the good part to me. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. 
St. Martha is the patron saint of butlers, cooks, and a variety of domestic services. So nice. we ask her intercession, St. Martha. Pray, for, pray us. for us. And within the next few minutes, I want to talk about a very exciting event that's going to be here in the Brazos Bryan College Station mm-hmm. area. It's going to be held at Christ the Good Shepherd Chapel on August 12th, 13th, and 14th. And in con- the Red Sea Apostolate is working with that, correct? Yes, ma'am, we are. We are helping to uh, bring together some of the some of the speakers that are going to be there on the 13th and the 14th. Uh, but I think easily the maybe the most exciting part of it is the Eucharist. <laughs> well, exciting in literally <laughs> human the, exciting in the literal literal sense of the word that excites the emotions. Uh, is the Matt Marr concert that's going to be on Thursday, August 12th. Yes. The name of this uh, gathering is Dwell. It's a deanery celebration. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us from the Gospel of John. There will be three days packed full of prayer for and as a community with these events, engaging speakers, Holy Mass, Eucharistic Adoration, Eucharistic Procession, Liturgy of the Hours, Community Devotions, but it's kicked off by a wonderful concert by Matt Moore. It, you know, this guy really amazes me on a, several levels. Uh, I saw him 20 years ago when he was just a pastoral musician mm-hmm. at St. Tim's in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, wow. when uh, as a part of Life Teen. I went to a conference there, and he was just their music minister. So you go way back with him. I do. <laughs> I do. He's been here locally a couple of times, but yeah. um, puts I mean, on a great concert. He he's really a national. I mean, national, and yet he takes time to come to small, smaller events. He could be out making more money somewhere yeah, else. I mean, he's but work, it's a very important to him on his tour of Texas, mm-hmm. uh, and so he had a spot, and he said, "Yeah, I'll come and, and do this for yeah. you and help help you kick off your your liturgical conference." And we, yep. I took the youth group to Godstock a couple of years ago, which is a smaller venue, and yep. I was just really amazed by that. So you can find more information at stabcs.org backslash dwell. And that's where you can buy your concert tickets for the event. Yes, very good. So, and uh, let's fill the place because you know what? They're going to have a knock your socks off MC and Thaddeus Romanski here from Red Sea Catholic Well, Radio. I mean, I'll be sharing those MC duties, but yeah, <laughs> thank you. So we're, yeah, it's going to be a great event to, to bring people together with their families. Good deal. So check it out. Uh, August 12th through the 14th, dwell. Join and, us on the other side. Yeah, and we can continue the shop talk right after the break. Red Sea Roundup coming back at you. Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. If you're just joining us, welcome to you. Uh, I'm your host, Judy Como, today uh, for Red Sea Roundup. And today my guest is our station manager, Thaddeus Romanski, and we're going to be discussing the American Catholic Odyssey. want to 
because that's what you put the title of it, mm-hmm. and that's how we're going <laughs> to... You're chuckling. Is that... <laughs> it's not, I'm just chuckling at myself because it sounds kind of like a pretentious title, but it's not meant to be. Okay. Okay. Can I, I throw wanna... one one little curveball in? We've been Could we stop to... you if we wanted? <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> one one neat thing that we're doing is is along with restructuring our satellite dishes, we, we're restructuring what Red Sea Radio is about. And mm-hmm. Thaddeus, I'm sure we'll talk about some of this, but he's speaking to you on the capacity of being not station manager any longer. He is the director for all of our apostolate for, let me get this right, education and development. And our former station director in Waco is now for all of our apostolate and all our future activities. The director, Robin Waters, is of evangelization Evangelization. and outreach. So, yeah, he's he's uh, using the the gifts that God gave him and ability to educate and to inform. So, yes. And if he was still sitting in that chair, he would have got that dry erase board and wrote, Judy, stop calling me the station manager because (laughs) I'm not that anymore as he does, uh, which we've communicated to each other like that. So as we get into this uh, interview slash conversation, I want to always uh, encourage our listeners, we would welcome... A phone call with a comment, a question, and to do that, you can dial 855-683-7332. That's Love Red Sea. Please call in and join in the conversation. So, Thaddeus? Yes, ma'am. Whatever your job description is, welcome. (laughs) Hey, it's exciting to be on this side of the, the round table talking to you. Good deal. Good. Well, and, I had, and again, I had a lot of enjoyment talking to the Bible gals at the beginning of July. And uh, that's the second time I've come over and spoken and given, given this presentation. Um, and if there is anyone that's listening who is intrigued by this and would like to, you know, maybe have it presented or maybe speak on some of these topics in more depth at a, a men's group or uh Bible study or any, yes. anything like that at some of the parishes listening, uh, you can contact me at Thaddeus at RedSeaRadio.org and I can come out and talk to you or great. just tell you about the radio station in general. If you don't want to hear about this. <laughs> well, today I do want to hear about this. So Yeah, um, you were you were out of town and you, you kind of scheduled this because you thought... You weren't able to, to hear the presentation, and you figured that there might be other people like yourself who might want to Kathy Borsky hear it. to name oh, someone Borsky, else, too. She was not able to. Uh, so I, I know that she'll, if she's not listening live, she'll listen to it this friend, Saturday. She friend is, and supporter of Red Sea Catholic yes, Radio. Yes, we thank the Borsky family for yeah, all of that. So Definitely. Uh, anybody else. So tell us about the Catholic Church coming to America. In a not so Eddie Murphy kind of way. <laughs> uh, definitely a, an '80s movie, emblematic of that of that decade for sure. Um, yeah, so the the idea behind this presentation, American Catholic Odyssey. You know, if you know anything about the mythological story of Odysseus from Greek mythology. Um, he leaves Ithaca to go fight in the Trojan War, and then on his way back to get back home, uh, he goes through all sorts of uh, twists and turns 
before he gets back to a homeland that is somewhat familiar, but also somewhat, you know, greatly changed. And then he has to go through an ordeal to reclaim his, his rightful place. And so we have that, that idea of an odyssey being, um, a journeying away from home and then returning back to home and, and going through, uh, many, many ordeals and often surprising, uh, twists and turns of, of events. And so I think I kind of thought Odyssey was a, was an apt term to describe the experience of the American Catholic church, both the institutional church, but especially the experience of Catholics in the pews over time. Uh, because I would suggest that from the first arrival of Catholics in, in the colonies, the English colonies, um, in this, you know, 17th century. Yeah. There's Maryland where it's supposed to be a colony founded. It's founded by Lord Baltimore, who's a, a Catholic and it's supposed to be a place of refuge for English Catholics from, you know, Protestant England. Okay. But quickly it kind of comes to be dominated by Anglican English and the penal laws, which were designed to suppress Catholicism in England were put into place in Maryland and through throughout many of the colonies. Again, I'm painting with very broad strokes here. Um, but that they kind of come to be second class citizens there and really throughout the colonies. And then that kind of carries over into uh, the experience in the founding of the United States that, uh, the United States is a Protestant, you know, majoritarian country. That's the that's the mainstream of life and belief in the United States. And so Catholics aren't fully accepted into into that that mainstream. And I think that that's we can kind of show that why they were in that status because they had a kind of an ethnic marker, they were sort of seen as almost a separate ethnicity. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad to put a word to one. it. Yeah. yeah. Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, it, when you have that mindset, it's like, how can you really describe it? And that that's a great way of doing it. Yeah. And then I would say they had a very sp specific, different creed. Okay. So like a set of beliefs. And then they had a very distinctive form of worship. So, so Catholics in the United States or Catholics in America had a, a distinctive ethnic identity, a distinctive creed, a distinctive kind of form of worship, very different from Protestant. Mm -hmm. And certainly different than today because of... Uh information being so, uh, I mean, we hear everything almost as if it's happening. And so how, how would you say that that mindset was sweeping? I mean, I would think that at the time the focus was very much more on politics and the, the things, the rhythm of the nation. Mm -hmm. It was a, on the back burner religion. Um, yeah, it, certainly that that's true in a sense. Um, of course, 
part of America's founding was that promise of freedom of religion, freedom of religious expression, and that there wouldn't be a state religion. Uh, in fact, many of the states, they actually did what was called disestablishment. That is, they, you know, maybe, um, let's say Virginia, for example, had been founded with the Anglican church being the literal state church that it was supported by, by taxes, for example, and coming out of the revolution, most, most all of the states immediately or very quickly thereafter removed that state support uh, of the churches from the, from the tax rolls. And it also became not part of the, um, constitution of many of the states that you had to be a member of a particular church in order to say vote or be considered a, a citizen of, of that state. So there's, there is that current of religious um, separatism, you know, the idea of separation between church and state and you have the disestablishment, but still Catholics are kind of on the outside mm -hmm. looking in uh, that being a Catholic was still oftentimes considered a, a dis, maybe not in maybe not legally but certainly de facto kind of a disbarment from participation in public life civic life in a lot of the the states um but at the same time there's there's exceptions to this too you know Charles Carroll uh, he was mm -hmm. the only Catholic to sign the Declaration of, of Independence, but there was a Catholic who did sign the Declaration, Declaration of How Independence. How many people did sign it? Ballpark. I'm just saying, you know, percentage. Two, two, or, two or three dozen, I think, yeah, names so, are on the, on the, the document. I mm -hmm. don't have that exact number. Sorry. I was just, uh, but like you said, still, there were, there was one Catholic and, um, yeah, and I, but I think that's a great, that's a good point to make because also for many, many decades at the beginning uh, through the colonial experience, okay, and then at the beginning of the, after 1776 and after 1787 and the signing of the Constitution, many decades where, I mean, Catholics, they're just a minority population. They're a very small percentage of the population of the United States and they're really kind of regionally, they're like in little pockets, mm -hmm. you know, Baltimore, um, I wouldn't even say really there's probably Baltimore and then really the next kind of big pockets of Catholicism in the new world are down in New Orleans in, which is French Louisiana, right? And then up in Canada, which had been settled by the French, but had become a, a British colony mm -hmm. after the seven years war. Um, Dennis just telling us 56 signers. Um, I didn't know he had that information right to hand in his memory. That's amazing. Um, great. Yeah. Thank you. I don't want to jump too far ahead. So just rein me in, but I'm going to go on and pose the question. Now, you know, the Catholic church educates more people, Catholic hospitals, the educational system, the college system, the things that the Catholic Church leads in and we should be proud of is, uh, so from this time till now, how did that pendulum swing? And is that going to be part of your talk oh, yeah, already? That, or, that's fine. That's fine uh, to, to, to jump to that point. Um, 
yeah, that percentage of the population going from a, a very small minority to a sizable minority, that starts to really change in the 1840s and mm -hmm. the 1850s with Irish immigration to the United States. Then you're starting to, to really get kind of the sizable populations of Catholics in urban areas especially that we think of kind of tra as being traditional Catholic places in this country. So New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, Due still to easily, easier immigration. That's points of immigration. Yeah, well, you know. Port of Ports of immigration. That's yeah, and and really, it's it's the Irish potato famine in the 1840s that drives a lot of those people to look for um, a, a place where they can survive mm -hmm. and provide for their families. And also, you have a lot of German immigration in the 1850s and the 1840s too, and they're mostly not staying so much in the cities, although there's a sizable population that do, but you get also many of those who continue on to the Western frontier and they settle in places like, you know, central Texas, mm -hmm. South central Texas. As our heritage, yeah. our and that Italian continue, immigrants. That continues on into the post-Civil War period. But that starts to bring uh, Catholics in the United States more to the uh, more into the line of sight of American Protestants and American Protestants who are in positions of power in state legislatures or governorships and the American in the press and in the media. And that's really when you start to see a lot more something that was characteristic of the American Catholic experience for a long long time, and that's anti-Catholic bigotry and prejudice and discrimination and even, you know, violence in some, some examples. So for example, there was a, the exact year is going to escape me, but sometime in the early 1840s, huge riot in Philadelphia, anti-Catholic riot. There were burnings of, uh, I believe a convent and just mob violence against, against Catholics. So that and there were other examples of that throughout that period. So that that's when you that's that's a, a feature that really starts to become prominent and just sort of part of the experience of of being a Catholic in the United States from about the mid nineteenth century. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, you know, there's thousands of those Irish and Irish American Catholics that, you know, fought and died in the Civil War, for example. And there were some Catholics who became um, part of the business elite, uh, the capitalist elite in the Industrial Revolution period after the Civil War. So there are, there are still Catholics who are contributing mightily to the development of the United States, even though they are not always treated equally, mm -hmm. treated fairly. And I think, again, that goes back to this idea of they have a, they're a separate, kind of seen as a separate ethnicity because um, the Irish have a, they were already discriminated against um, 
in in England and and by the English, and there were laws and restrictions on the Irish in their their homeland, and then they were coming to a majority, as a people, yeah, separate from their Catholic right Catholic. So the the just so all the ethnic markers are about their food and their dress and their form of speech and obviously the uh, their tendency to enjoy alcohol. Um, that all got kind of layered onto the fact that they were Catholic and the mm. fact that they were Catholic was used to explain that they had all these patterns of, of their culture. And, and that was kind of repeated with German Catholics and Italian Catholics and Polish Catholics, that same sort of blending of the religious. It's those with Catholics. The, with the those ethnic. Catholics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we have to remember that many of the major Protestant denominations in the in the country at this time were either wholly um, temperate, temp, temperate. They were they were wholly not H O L Y, but W H O L L Y. They were dry. They they were against alcohol, right? They had bans on alcohol, or or they had you know big splits in their denomination where there was you know part of the denomination was was wet. They were fine with a little bit of drinking in moderation, and another group was very much against the consumption of alcohol. And you have through a lot of the nineteenth century uh, this temperance movement that is. Going, th- you know, sometimes it's stronger in certain decades, sometimes it's weaker in other decades, trying to pass laws to restrict the sale and the consumption of alcohol. Right. And so the picture of the Catholic Church, any saint anywhere on Sunday was the traditional, traditional Latin mass is what, mm-hmm. what the mat, what our church liturgical experience was. Right. And that's, a, that, and that's a great point too. That was, that's that worship piece mm-hmm. where the way that Catholics uh, spent their Sunday mornings was very drastically. different, drastically different from it, from many of the Protestant worship styles, especially when you, you're talking about kind of a low church um, Protestant style, maybe on in frontier areas or in the West where it's a traveling circuit um, Methodist minister coming to a, a frontier town. They can only have communion once a month. Um, it's reading from the word of God and then a long sermon from that preacher and a, a shortened um, Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not every time. Whereas pff, Catholics are, you think of a, uh, even a Latin low mass is lots of periods of silence. The priest is facing away from the congregation. It's in Latin. It's not in the vernacular. Um, and there's every single time there's Eucharist. And what do the what do Catholics say about the Eucharist? That they're eating Jesus's body and blood. Uh, and when the when the word of God is proclaimed in the Catholic Mass, it's not it's not even being read to the people in English. It's being read to them in Latin, so they don't they don't know the they don't know the Bible. So yeah, so 
that the form of worship that Catholic Catholics had was was very foreign and, and very open to being you know misinterpreted and misunderstood as yeah. not really Christian. Yeah, I mean, I, as you're as we're having this conversation, I'm imagining so the Protestant Reformation, Protestantism in the United States had only been around for a couple of hundred years at this point and so i i'm just wondering like how did how did all of that play out once the you know martin luther break yeah, away so, from the catholic church and what they're you know at that point i mean we have so many thousands of denominations now here today but it wasn't always that way yeah but even very rapidly you may you may recall yeah. with calvin and uh, the zwinglians mm-hmm. in G- geneva very rapidly, you get lots of the Catholic aspects of the liturgy stripped away, and you you don't you have bare walls, four bare walls, and a and a sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, that that kind of shorthand, um, and no no Eucharist in some, no 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 Lord's Supper in some Protestant denominations, right? Intentionally to have a drastic difference from the Catholic. Yeah. Form of worship. Yeah. That's fascinating. And then finally, you know, that, that third aspect that I was mentioning, that creed in terms of the Catholic beliefs, um, odd practices to many American Protestant denominations and American the American Protestant experience, something like going to a priest for confession. confession. And I, I think it's important to not just, it's not just that you were going to a priest, but it was that whole picture and idea of you go into a little box and you sit separated by the screen and you tell the priest your sins. So you're you're telling the priest your sins, the, the most intimate details of your life, and you're doing, you're doing it in a closed, secretive uh, space. Mm-hmm. Try to tell me, what, what do you think an outsider who's already suspicious of Catholicism, already suspicious of the power of, because that's another thing, the hierarchy of the church, mm-hmm. already suspicious of the role that bishops play, the Pope plays, what do you think an outsider might think is going on? Like, why, would, why would you do that? God's everywhere. You can just say that directly to God. Mm-hmm. Why would you need to go certainly put yourself through that? Right. And certainly questioning that, but even more so the the idea that they're going in, they're going into the confessional to receive. They're not just the the penitents, not just telling his sins, but he's being told, given secret directions being told to to do things that well, did, could could be used to bring down the society. So there's there's a lot of suspicion of how loyal Catholics are to the United States because their ultimate loyalty is supposed to be to the Pope, mm-hmm. to their church. Right. right. Does the idea of the need of grace in your life, is that even spoken of in Protestant Protestantism? I mean, 
we we as Catholics know that sacraments are an outward sign of you know the <laughs> right of well, obtaining grace, but I think free gift of God. So uh, um, I wonder if that kind of played in. Again, a I think bit. again, no? I want to first caveat: yeah, sorry. I'm speaking in very broad mm-hmm. broad terms, and I'm not speaking as an expert on on Protestant uh, theology, but there is an understanding that. Grace is on offer through reading the Bible, through the scriptures, through prayer, and asking God to come come into your life, come into your heart, and then and and leading a a moral life. And there and there's so let let's just yeah, leave it at that. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, but there's there's a great deal of suspicion about. What, what role loyalty to the bishop and loyalty to the pope plays in how loyal Catholics can be to Our defending nation. Yeah. the nation and to participating in the, the civic life of the nation. So there's lots of questions about should they be allowed to vote? Should being a Catholic be a bar on voting? Um, there are worries about Catholics who are entering the country from some, some of this starts with Irish immigration, but it's especially gets ratcheted up in the first part of the 20th century when you have immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe. And there's a lot of talk in, in the press and in the culture at the time of these are illiterate peasants. They are coming from countries that are not, democratic they're from monarchical uh, states and they don't have any familiarity with being a a self-governing citizen so we're just letting in all these people who don't have any capability of being self-governing individual citizens they're under the control they're used to being controlled by faraway powers their their king and and then this religious figure the, the pope and their bishops they're under the control of their their priests um i think i i showed the group uh, a thomas nast cartoon and mm-hmm. he was he was a very anti-catholic cartoonist from the 1870s uh this kind of conniving priest uh rubbing his hands together um looking on as a bunch of schoolboys uh, are kind of mobbing and they're this one boy is kicking kicking an object up into the air and what is he kicking he's kicking the holy bible mm-hmm. and and so there's this this real <clears throat> again suspicion or belief that the hierarchy of the church is kind of standing in back of everything and you know maybe directing catholics that are in the country to work against the country's democratic english protestant kind of heritage how's that well it as you said it does paint a broad <laughs> Broad painting with broad strokes, and uh, but it, I mean, it's 
every bit of everything that I've never even given thoughts to. But I mean, I'm interested in history, but not to the level of of understanding some of these yeah. things. And I want to. Um, so all of this kind of can can feed into to the point of explaining that by the the 1920s after World War One, the you have the second Ku Klux Klan arise in the United States. And although it certainly still had its tra- traditional uh, ha- hatred of blacks, it had a new target, Jews, and then even more so Catholics. They were extremely, extremely anti-Catholic. And that's because from 1890 to about 1920, that was what was called the Great Immigration and huge, huge numbers of new immigrants to this country from, like I was saying, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, and those are almost entirely Catholic populations. So there's there's this enormous new group of, of Catholics in the country. And again, those people are going to be settling here. They're going to be having families. And so those there's people, <laughs> there's this, there's this view that. They are, and okay, what's another stereotype of Catholics in terms of Catholic families mm. tra- traditionally? What is it? Bunch of kids. Huge, huge, <laughs> huge families, lots of kids. So you can see how that's playing out into the minds of groups like, say, the second Ku Klux Klan of they're coming here, they're poor, they're illiterate, they're controlled by their priests and their hierarchy, and they have all these kids, and they're just going to multiply and multiply, and they're going to take over the country. They're going to take the country away from us. Mm-hmm. And it was everywhere? It was... The Klan? Yes. Well, the Klan was mostly... It was had strong support in the South, mm-hmm. the Midwest, some in the Northwest too. There was a march in Washington, um, thousands of Klansmen in robes with signs, Gosh. many of them anti-Catholic signs uh, in Washington, D.C. in 1925, marched down Pennsylvania Avenue. That just, that is staggering. Yeah. It, it and they really, cold. and they really were mobilized um, to oppose the uh, election of Al Smith to the presidency in 1928. He was the Dem- the Democratic Party's candidate for president in 1928. He was the first Catholic candidate for president ever in the country's history. He was a very sincere Catholic, um, very devout, um, both in his practice and in his and his belief. Wonder very how orthodox. many people grinned at that, like we just did. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure many, many people did. But by by all uh, by all accounts, he was very orthodox, both in his religious practice and in his mm-hmm. religious belief. So he's the Democratic Party's candidate for for president. Most Ku Klux Klan members would have been Democrats um, from the South, from the Midwest, and so they were. They were opposing their own their own party mm-hmm. and its choice of the party's national candidate for president, um, and it ended up 
you know, being, being somewhat effective in um, Smith's going down to defeat against Herbert Hoover in 1928. But that, that's really kind of the, the height of anti-Catholic um, attitudes in the press and in widespread culture kind of peaks there in, in 1928 mm-hmm. with Alf Smith's um, nomination and then defeat. How did, how did it start to change? Okay, so you started to see some changes um, with, I like to chalk it up to World War One, the Great Depression, and World War Two, And that's because those were three major events, and each one of them was wider in its uh, scope and effect on the country at large than the previous one. Those, but those were three events that really touched all Americans, whether of whatever class, of whatever race or ethnicity, whatever region. People felt the effects of World War One, mm-hmm. the Great Depression, and World War Two, and especially in the case of. You know, with World War One and World War Two, you have mass conscription. You have the draft. So men from all walks of life, all parts of the country, all types of Americans are drawn into the U.S. Army, to the Navy, and then they get mixed together. And and that's kind of new in American military history. history. So rather than like building up little units from the local community and men having some kind of tie to where they came from. You had much more of a drawing everyone into this big mass and mixing them together and then creating, you know, divisions or, or units out of that, if that makes sense. So you have an intermingling of people from different walks of life and different parts of the country and different religions all serving alongside one another. That starts to happen in World War One. It's going to be really pronounced, much more pronounced in, in World War Two. Yeah. Um, the Great Depression. I mean, everyone is affected by by that economic downturn. You have twenty five percent unemployment in nineteen thirty two. That that's the depths of the Great Depression. Um, didn't matter if you were white, black. Brown, didn't matter if you were Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, what part of the country you lived in. I mean, some some parts of the country were less affected or more affected, but still everyone felt the effects. And many, many, many Americans were recipients of different kinds of government programs. Either they, you know, were a young man and they went off and worked in the Civilian Conservation Corps or they worked on a, on building a school or a bridge with the Public Works Administration, um, Catholics, Protestants alike were, you know, recipients of some of the, the first Social Security aid, that, that's a New Deal program. So everyone is being put through these trying experiences together and they come out on the other side of World War II 
with prosperity, victory against uh, the Japanese empire and against Nazism and this sense of triumph and that we, you know, did it together. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll give an example. Uh, You look at a film like Guadalcanal Diary from, I think, 1942. So it's a wartime Hollywood film. There's a, there's a very deliberate emphasis in, a, in that movie, for example, of showing that the guys in this unit are from different walks of life, from different parts of the country, different ethnicities, different religions, and there's the, the stereotypical Catholic guy in there who's got his rosary beads and he's making the sign of the cross and he's working uh, working and mm-hmm. serving alongside bravely with these other men. So that's an example of, so you take that and you, you take that snapshot and you put it against some of the anti-Catholic mm-hmm. um, imagery from the 1928 election. Wow, what a change. What a change. So coming out of World War II, I say that that's American Catholics kind of joining the mainstream of American life. And then, of course, the pinnacle of that, or or it really being driven home, is 1960. What happened in 1960, Judy? What happened in 1960? Mm-hmm. Well, Vatican II was on the on horizon, the but... Uh... President Kennedy. That's right. Election of John F. Kennedy, the country's first Catholic president. And so that was kind of the, the, that was, that was reaching. Open the door, I suppose. Yeah, that was really, that was really the the pinnacle of joining the mainstream for American, American Catholics. And he had served, you know, very honorably Mm -hmm. as a Medal of Honor winner from World War II in his um, service in the U.S. Navy. So that's, that brings us to Kennedy's election. And I think as we're trying to wrap up here, um, you have that sort of Catholics as a separate ethnicity is starting to sort of fade away. And 1960, the, the creed piece and the worship piece, now those are still relatively in place and those mm-hmm. still are distinctive about American Catholics. But then, like you said, we have the Second Vatican Council, and regardless of what the documents of the council said, which is, that's the council. Drastically different than right? what actually. <laughs> but there were aspects of the council that percolated out into mainstream belief, widespread belief. And so you take Pope John Paul, Pope John, Paul, <laughs> Pope John the Twenty-Third's his speech to open the council where he famously said, throw open the windows of the church to the world. Well, that got to, that got picked up and misinterpreted as let the world guide the church. So then you, and then you start to see a very, very drastic interpretation of what worship should look like, what the mass should be uh, out coming out of Vatican II. Many drastic changes to the liturgy, you know, it being in vernacular for, for one. So the Second Vatican Council initiates these changes in creed and worship that 
make American Catholics very much more like their Protestant, secular American fellow citizens in, in many, many ways. And I think that starts to, and we're going to have to save this for maybe next time, that kind of opens up or sets up American Catholics to be a lot more um, vulnerable to the changes that started to happen in the wider culture, and that would then put our beliefs, our forms of worship um, in conflict with that with that wide, more mainstream culture. And then this decision by ordinary American Catholics of, well, which path am I going to, to follow? And mm-hmm. we, we'd have to come back together another time to I kind hope, of I hope that flesh we will. that story out. Yeah. But um, so it's, it's really kind of hard to tell who you are today if you don't know where you came from, yeah. like the Old Testament and the New Testament. But sure want to thank you, Thaddeus, for being here with us. And... As always, when choosing between the values of the world and the values of heaven, always round up. Shake off, rumors and talking, I'm a-